0: Jesus warned us, or maybe I should say that he promised us, that as a result of our discipleship, as a result of being believers in Christ, our families would turn against us. And for some of you, that became a stark reality when you became a Christian. The words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, when he said, I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. For some of you, those words rang true. And Jesus, in the very next verse, throws down a gauntlet and He says, He who loves father or mother more than Me is not worthy of Me. And he who loves son or daughter more than Me is not worthy of Me. For some of you, when you became believers, you found that that was precisely true. It was accurate. Um, You became saved and you went back and you told your mother and your father and your siblings, and your co-workers, and your friends, all about your newfound faith in Christ, and they didn't respond nearly with the excited glee that you thought they would respond with. Instead, they thought you had lost your mind and joined a cult, and that you had become some sort of sociopathic, prudish, uh self-righteous do-gooder who thought you were better than everybody else, and thought you were more righteous than everybody else, and they didn't understand your hunger for righteousness. They thought it was a waste of time for you to spend your time in church or in Bible study or reading the Bible or in worship and praise or in service to the Lord because the unbeliever has no hunger for righteousness at all. And so they suddenly found themselves at odds with you. Some of you have found yourself in that boat. Maybe it was that you grew up in a believing household and your parents were already saved and your siblings were already saved and you don't know what that's like. But For many of you sitting here, you know what it's like to be on the opposite side of a great divide from your friends and your family when you came to faith in Christ. They don't understand you. You understand them because you were once where they're at, but you're not anymore. I sometimes wish, in fact I oftentimes wish, that we had a little bit more information about how the Apostle Paul's relatives responded to his conversion. Wouldn't that be interesting to know? I mean, it would have taken look one verse in the book of Acts. Luke could have summed up how the apostle Paul's family and friends responded to his conversion. And I've asked myself, were his parents still alive when he got saved? Were his grandparents? And how did the how did the parents of this wonderful Judaistic star of Judaism pupil? How did they respond when he got saved? They had done the best that they could to make sure that he had the the best education that a Jewish boy could get at the feet of the greatest rabbi who had who had ever lived, Gamaliel. And he had an education second to none. And his parents had to have sacrificed and had to have pulled some strings to get him in Gamaliel's class and to give him that type of an education. How did they respond when suddenly their boy became an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God? Did the Apostle Paul sit down with them and explain to them what had happened? And his grandparents as well. We know that he had a lineage of, of people in his family who were conservative, orthodox, God-loving Jews. How did they respond to his conversion? How about Gamaliel? Did he go back and he sit down with Gamaliel and explain to Gamaliel what had happened and what he had seen on the Damascus Road? And as Paul had a sister. You see, later on in Acts chapter 23, we find out the Apostle Paul had a sister. She lived in Jerusalem, and he had a nephew in Jerusalem. And I wonder, how did his sister and his nephew, were they believers? Did they respond well to his conversion? Or were they saved before Paul was, perhaps? Or saved after the Apostle Paul? Why do we have no record about how Paul's family responded to his conversion? We do have a record about how Paul's friends responded to his conversion. You know who his friends were? Caiaphas and Annas, who had put to death Jesus Christ. His friends were Gamaliel and men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who sat on the Sanhedrin with him. His friends were the priests and the high priests and the Pharisees and the elders and all of the orthodox, uppity-up Jewish elite that sat on the council and on the court. Those were his friends. And they loved the Apostle Paul when Paul was Saul. When he was persecuting Christians, these people who hated Christians loved Paul. But then there were those few moments on the Damascus Road when everything changed for him. And then how did his friends respond to his conversion experience? Acts chapter 9 says that he went back into Jerusalem three years after his conversion. He went back into Jerusalem and he was arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. And guess what? They were seeking to put him to death. That's how Paul's friends responded to his conversion experience. Ananias, or sorry, Annas, and Caiaphas, and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the high priests, and the people in the council, and the Hellenistic Jews, and all of the people that he had associated with before, all of his friends were trying to put him to death. They wanted him dead. They wanted to kill him. Now before they loved him, and now they hated him. And what was the difference? What was different? Paul was different. And that's it. And Paul suddenly found out that His enemies would be the members of his own household. His enemies would be his friends, or his friends would turn into his enemies because of his love for Christ. Well, in Acts chapter 9, it wasn't the first or the last time that they had tried to put the Apostle Paul to death. It wasn't the last time that the Sanhedrin would have an opportunity to have him in their crosshairs, right at the center of their target, and they were itching to pull the trigger. They were itching to put this man to death. The second time that they had opportunity to do that is in Acts chapter 23, and you'll need to have your Bibles open to that passage, Acts chapter 23, and that is the one that we read this morning for our scripture reading. The Apostle Paul is standing in the Sanhedrin in his old stomping grounds, and he is before all of the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And this is the the council of people that is made up of uh, Annas, the high priest, who is the most wicked and corrupt. And violent man who had ever held the office of high priest. Annas is there, and all of the high priestly family, those who were of high priestly descent, and the elders are there, all of the priestly elite, men who were like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, although those two men weren't on the council at this time, but men like that, sort of the wealthy priestly elite, they served on the council. And then you had all of the scribes who were the experts in the law, they were on the council. And this council that Paul is standing before has the power to try him and to put him to death for violating Jewish law. Sorry, the power to try him. They didn't have the power to put him to death, but they could punish him. But the fact that they did not have legal ability or power under Rome to put the Apostle Paul to death, that doesn't mean anything, does it? Because did they have power to put Stephen to death or authority to put Stephen to death? They didn't, but they did anyway. And the Apostle Paul knows there's... Nothing that's going to keep them from putting him to death if he falls into their clutches. And so here stands the Apostle Paul, and this is his own stomping grounds. This is where the Apostle Paul used to hang out when he was Saul of Tarsus. He used to hang out with the men like Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest. He used to hang out with men like Gamaliel who sat on the council. And I'm of the opinion that the Apostle Paul sat on the council, and that the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, and that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and that he was part of this elite body at one time. Because in Acts chapter 26, the Apostle Paul says that he cast his vote against believers to put them to death. He had a vote, and he exercised his vote, and he voted, like in the instance with Stephen, to put him to death. But here's a twist of fate, a little twist an ironic twist of history. There was a time when the Apostle Paul sat in this council, and he's familiar with this proceedings. He's familiar with the people. He was there at one time, but he was on the prosecution. And there was, remember, a time when he raised accusations against a young man named Stephen and said he speaks against the law and he speaks against the temple. And now the Apostle Paul is standing before the council and he's not on the prosecution, he's on the defense. And what are the accusations against him? This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people, against the law, against the temple, and he's defiled the temple by bringing into the temple a Greek. And now Lysias has brought the Apostle Paul in and set him before these men and he is giving them an opportunity to raise their accusations against the Apostle Paul and see if there is a grounds for which that he can turn, Lysias can turn the Apostle Paul over to these Jews, over to the council. He wants to find out what was at the heart of this riot that occurred on the previous day. And you remember from last week that as the Apostle Paul just began to give his defense, he said, I have lived before God with a perfectly good conscience up till now, up to this day. And at at that declaration of his innocence, Ananias gave the order to have the Apostle Paul struck on the mouth. And so they beat him across the mouth. It was a violation of the law. And Ananias was guilty of violating the law in the court proceedings. And the Apostle Paul said to him what? God is going to strike you, you whitewashed tomb. How dare you sit there and try me according to the law when you have violated the law. Well, that was a violation of the law to speak to a high priest like that. And those who were standing by said, you revile God's high priest? And the Apostle Paul immediately said, I didn't know he was the high priest because Scripture says you shouldn't speak evil of a ruler of your people. And that brings us up to verse 6 where we're going to be looking at this morning verses 6-10. through 10. And I want you to see how the Apostle Paul handles these proceedings that are going against him. They're not going in his favor. So picking it up at verse 6, follow along as I read through verse 10. Paul, perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, and he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now after Paul gets struck on the mouth and he reviles the high priest and he's called on the carpet for that and he apologizes for that, the apostle Paul realizes that things are not going as he planned. Things are not going in his favor. And so the apostle Paul does something that I think is incredibly wise, incredibly witty, and incredibly skillful. He takes a, a monkey wrench as it were and he throws it right into the gears of the whole proceedings. And there's so much in verse 6 that I have to unpack so you'll understand the rest of this, the rest of this passage. I just want you to Camp on verse 6 for a second. Read it again. Perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial today for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Paul was able to stand in the council and he perceived. Now that doesn't mean that he was studying the council and he realized, "Oh, some of these guys are Pharisees and some of these guys are Sadducees. That's not what it means. It means that Paul knew Paul knew, gnosko is the word, not that he was able to discern, but that the Apostle Paul knew some of them were Pharisees and some of them were Sadducees. How did he know that? Because the makeup of the council had not changed all that much since his involvement with them. And he knew that there were hot theological issues that were just barely beneath the surface that were always waiting to erupt. And perceiving that some of them were Pharisees, and some of them Sadducees, the Apostle Paul makes a statement that immediately guarantees him a hung jury. The minute he makes a statement, there's no way they're going to be able to convict him. There's no way he's going to get a unanimous vote against him to put him to death or to turn him over to the council. Now, you need to understand what a Pharisee is and what a Sadducee is, and let me describe these two groups to you. The fundamental difference between A Pharisee and a Sadducee was that one group, the Pharisees, were theological conservatives and one group, the Sadducees, were theological liberals. The Sadducees were kind of this interesting sect of people. They were very political, very pro-Roman, more of a political sect than they were a religious sect. They were very uh, snooty, very arrogant, very condescending toward the average man because they viewed themselves as the keepers of Jewish orthodoxy. And as you're going to see, they were anything but the keepers of Jewish orthodoxy. The Sadducees traced their history back to 150 B.C. during the time of the Maccabees. And they believed that at that time, real Judaism, the real faith of of Jewishness was restored. And they saw themselves sort of as the keepers of that, the defenders of, of good old Judaism that went right back to Moses. The Sadducees rejected all of the Old Testament prophets all of the traditions, all of the poetry, all of the wisdom literature, and all of the history books of the Old Testament. Now you say, what did they accept? They accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The five books of Moses were the only ones they recognized as authoritative. The rest of them they jettisoned. had nothing to do with them. They believed that around the time 150, the Messianic Age came to be. Now you say, how can you have a messianic age before you have a messiah? How can you have a messianic age 150 years B.C.? Because to the Sadducee, they didn't view the messiah as a person. They viewed him as an ideal or an idea. You see, the messianic age was more of a process of becoming. They didn't believe in a literal messiah. They didn't believe in a literal messianic age. They didn't believe in a literal reign with a literal descendant of David and a literal man who would sit on that throne. They didn't believe in any of that. To them, the Messianic age was just this process of becoming, a process of enlightenment. And you can see right away why they were at loggerheads with the apostles, can't you? What do the apostles preach? That Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, has been declared the Son of God by resurrection, with power by resurrection from the dead. And the apostles preached that the promises that were given to the Old Testament prophets—that this one would sit on the throne of his father David and rule—would really come to pass. And that it was necessary for that Christ to die and to rise again for the hope and the promise to David to be made fulfilled. And so they really literally believed in a literal Messiah who was Christ, who died, and who rose again. And of course, the Sadducees didn't believe any of that. So they hated the apostles. Because the apostles' theology was completely contradictory to theirs. And that brings up another thing that the Sadducees didn't believe, and that is they didn't believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. Not just the resurrection of Christ in particular, but just the idea of resurrection. Dead people don't come back to life. They denied that at the end of time there would be a general resurrection of all men, some to life and some to destruction. They denied that. For the Sadducee, when you died, that was it. There was no afterlife, there was no punishment, there was no rewards, there was nothing outside of this world. To the Sadducee, there were no spirits, there were no angels, there were no miracles, there was nothing supernatural. And the Sadducees rejected any idea that God was sovereign in any way. To them, man was sovereign. Man is the captain of his own soul, the captain of his own fate. Man makes his own decisions, and God takes a back seat to it. Now, what I've just described to you, friends, could be taken out of the doctrinal statement of nearly any mainline church in America today. Any liberal mainline denomination would just affirm everything I just described to you. Those were the Sadducees. Those were the liberals. Now, you want to know what a Pharisee was? The exact opposite of that. The Pharisees believed in a literal Messiah that they were waiting for. That He would literally sit on David's throne and He would literally rule. That there would literally bring a deliverance from Rome. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection at the end of time, like Daniel described in Daniel chapter 12, when he said, Many of those who sleep in the dust will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. They held to a general resurrection at the end of time. They believed in angels, they believed in spirits, and they accepted all the Old Testament books as well as all the traditions and all the writings of the rabbis and the traditions of men. Everything that a Sadducee believed, a Pharisee didn't believe. Everything that a Pharisee believed, a Sadducee didn't believe. They were irreconcilably on opposite sides of the spectrum. One group was liberals... One group was conservative. One group rejected all of the Orthodox tenets of the Jewish faith. The other group adhered to all of the Orthodox tenets of the Jewish faith. The only thing that they could agree upon was that they wanted Paul dead. When this council convened, the only thing the Pharisees and the Sadducees had in common was, number one, that they were Jews, and number two, that they wanted Paul dead. That's all they could agree on. And they were willing to lay aside all of their... Theological differences and everything, if they could get the Apostle Paul dead, if they could deal with him, one group's liberal, one group is conservative. And the Apostle Paul knew, the Apostle Paul knew that these theological differences, these hot topics, were always just beneath the surface. Because when the Sadducees and the Pharisees would come together and some issue would be raised, do you think that... Do you think that it was possible for them to render a verdict or a judgment upon nearly anything without disagreeing? They are at polar opposites on everything. Now the Sadducees control the power in the Sanhedrin. There are more Pharisees than there are Sadducees. So either the Sadducees controlled all the priesthood, the high priest office, all of that. But the rank and file priests, the guys in the temple doing the sacrifices and the feasts and all of that ministry in the temple, they were Pharisees. They weren't the liberals of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the liberals. They were kind of the elites of the priesthood. But the bulk of the people on the Sanhedrin, the scribes and the the men who were like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, those men, like Gamaliel, they were Pharisees. Men like Paul were Pharisees. You just had a few of these Sadducees, a, 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 a fraction of them, who were liberals. But Paul was able to see that half of them were Pharisees and half of them were Sadducees. And so he stands up in the middle of the of the proceedings, and he says, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, and I am a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial today for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Now, you can't read verse 6 without realizing that the Apostle Paul has switched tracks. Do you notice that? How did he start out? Back in verses 1 and 2, how did he start out? I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Smack, right across the face. It was worse than that. They beat him on the face. I expect that the Apostle Paul was going to go on and describe how he had lived his life with a pure conscience, how he had persecuted the church and how he had been a member of the Sanhedrin, and then how Christ had appeared to him on the road to Damascus. I am expecting from how he begins his defense that his intention was to give a very similar address to what he did in the previous chapter when he was addressing the Jews from the steps going up into the barracks. But when the Apostle Paul gets smacked in the face and in violation of the law, he's beaten without being charged, all of a sudden he switches tracks. And he begins to cry out in the assembly. And I think he had to cry out because the noise and the confusion was already at a point where he had to raise his voice to be heard. Once they realized that he had violated the law by reviling the high priest, they wanted his blood. And so as everything began to, to sort of disintegrate in front of the Apostle Paul, he cries out, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And he cries this out in the midst of the assembly. And you know why he's switching tracks? Two reasons. First, because he all of a sudden realized that this trial was a sham. There was no way he was going to get a fair trial in front of these men. Ananias had violated the law by having him struck, and the Apostle Paul must have realized, they called me on the carpet for reviling the high priest, and I did so in ignorance. I didn't even know he was a high priest. They called me on the carpet for violating the law like that. They didn't say anything about Ananias' blatant violation of the law. And he suddenly realizes he's not going to get a fair trial here. They're not interested in his defense. They're not interested in his reasons. They're not interested in listening to him or reasoning through these things. All they're interested in is killing him. And second, the apostle Paul realizes, the apostle Paul realizes that he is on trial for his life. Because listen, friends, if they can bring an accusation against him, And if they can bring witnesses against him, Lysias is anxious to turn the Apostle Paul over to somebody else because this prisoner, Paul, is an albatross on his hands, and he doesn't want Paul. He's anxious to turn him over. And if this Sanhedrin can bring a valid accusation against him and valid witnesses against him, Lysias will gladly turn Paul over to the Sanhedrin. And do you think the Apostle Paul wants that? No, he's he's in a struggle for his life. And so that's why he cries out, I am a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees, And I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And I want you to notice those two things. Hope and resurrection of the dead. They are closely connected, so closely that the NIV translates it, I am on trial for my hope in the resurrection of the dead. But what the Apostle Paul is talking about is not his hope in the resurrection of the dead. He is talking about the national hope. I am on trial for the hope. What was the hope of the Jewish nation? The hope of the Jewish nation was that they looked forward to a day when their Messiah would come and their Messiah would deliver them and their Messiah would sit on the throne of his father David and rule forever and ever. That was the Jewish hope. That was what the angel promised Mary when he announced the birth of the Son of God through Mary. That was the hope of the entire nation. That was what they all looked forward to. And the Apostle Paul says, I am on trial for that hope because I believe in a literal Messiah. I believe that he is a literal son of David. And I hold to the messianic hope of our fathers and the prophets. And he says, I believe in the resurrection. You see, you had to have a resurrection to have a son of David who could rule forever and ever. You couldn't have a man who could die rule forever. But you could have a man who could be born and die and rise again, never to die again, uncorruptible, who could fulfill those promises. So the Apostle Paul says, I'm on trial for the hope, and I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead, because he believed in the resurrection. It was almost as if the Apostle Paul looked at the council and he saw that he had about 70% of the people there who were Pharisees. And he said, Brethren, I want you to know, I'm one of you. I'm a Pharisee. And I'm a son of Pharisees. I have a long lineage of Pharisaic tradition in my family. I'm a Pharisee and I'm a son of Pharisees. And the reason I am on trial today right here before you is because I hold to the national hope of a literal Messiah. And I believe in the supernatural. I believe in the resurrection And I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, declared to be so by the resurrection from the dead. And half of this group, well more than half, the Pharisees would side with Him. And the Sadducees wouldn't. Now understanding the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees, let me ask you a question. Would it be possible to become a Christian and be a good Pharisee? It would be, wouldn't it? You could be a Christian and be a good Pharisee to to an extent. Because you wouldn't have to change your theology. Pharisees believed all the things that Christians believed. They, They were really close. They were looking forward to the Messiah, believed in the ability of God to raise the dead. But what the Pharisee lacked was the recognition that Jesus was the Messiah because he did rise from the dead. Now, could you be a Christian and still be a good Sadducee? No. For a Sadducee to become a Christian meant that they would have to abandon everything that their party held to that's why in the early church there were a lot of pharisees who became believers but not a lot of Sadducees who became believers so the apostle paul gets half of more than half of the council on his side and he says i am on trial today because i believe in the national hope a literal messiah i'm looking forward to that day i believe in that hope and i'm on trial because of the resurrection of the dead he cuts through all of the chaff he cuts right down to the basic issue why was it that they hated him you know why they hated him They hated him because he preached Christ and Christ crucified. He preached the hope and the hope risen again. And they wanted to make this an issue of saying he's anti-Semitic, he's against the temple, he's against the law, he's defiled the temple. And the Apostle Paul blows all of that aside and says, this is why I'm on trial. I am on trial because I preach Christ and Him crucified and risen again. I preach the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And when the Apostle Paul said that, instantly there was a hung jury. The Pharisees sided with him, and the Sadducees were against him. And look what Luke says in verse 7. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. I want you to notice, the Apostle Paul doesn't need to say anything else. He doesn't say anything else. He makes that one statement, and then it's as if he can just sit back and let nature take its course. Because he knows what's going to happen. He's been in these proceedings before. When somebody brings something up like this, he knows what the council is going to do. There was a great division. Verse 8, this is where Luke explains to Theophilus, the recipient of the book, this is where Luke explains to Theophilus what I just explained to you and the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 8, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Verse 9, and there occurred a great uproar. And some of the scribes of the Pharisee of party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. <laughs> Isn't that great? Paul says, This is why I'm on trial. And instantly every Pharisee in there said, Hey, 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 that's what we believe. Why are we trying this guy? They started arguing heatedly. See, that's how theological discussions go. You start arguing a theological point, and it always produces more heat than light. And they begin to argue heatedly, saying... We find nothing wrong with this man. They've acquitted him. Now, do the Sadducees want to see him acquitted? No, they want to see him dead. The Pharisees now want to see him delivered. Because you know what the Pharisees are thinking in their mind? The Pharisees are thinking in their mind, hey, this guy's one of us. If we cast our vote to put this guy to death, what does that say about how we view our own beliefs? That would be a victory for the Sadducees. Because the Sadducees hold that anybody who believes what Paul believes... In a literal Messiah and spirits and angels and the resurrection and the sovereignty of God and all of those things that were part of Old Testament Judaism, anybody who believes that is a heretic and we need to put him to death. And the Pharisee just saying, we can't vote against our own party. He's a Pharisee and the son of Pharisees. We have to side with him because are the Pharisees going to yield one inch to a Sadducee? Never. Never one inch. They can't give the Sadducees the benefit of putting a Pharisee to death. They have to side with the Pharisee. And do you think the Apostle Paul knew this was going to happen? Yeah, that's why Luke says, perceiving that one group of Pharisees and Sadducees, the Apostle Paul said, i got an idea. I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. They could just step out of it and have at her. That's what they did. This massive dissension in the courtroom. And the Pharisees are arguing heatedly, we find no problems with this man whatsoever. Maybe a little bit more heatedly than I just stated it. But look further what they say. Perhaps an angel or a spirit has spoken to him. What are they making reference to there? Perhaps an angel or a spirit has spoken to him. Everybody on that council knew of the Apostle Paul's conversion experience. Some of them had been in the temple and heard his testimony the day prior when he said he was on the road to Damascus and he saw a light and he heard a voice that said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And get up, Paul. What are they referring to when they say, perhaps an angel or a spirit has spoken to him? Why is he standing before them? Because he had the audacity to suggest that he had been commissioned by somebody in the temple to be uh, an apostle to the Gentiles. And so they're not content just to say, well, well, we believe that he's a Pharisee too and we believe in the resurrection. But they kind of get this extra goad in on the Sadducees by saying, perhaps his conversion experience was an angel or a spirit speaking to him. They want to affirm other things that the Sadducees don't agree in. Well, it's one thing for you to affirm the resurrection, but then to have half the council bring up the issue of the spirits and the angels, that was more than they could bear. The gall. They took it one step further. The Apostle Paul didn't mention spirits or angels, but they see this as an opportunity to take their theological agenda and just drive it home. And the Apostle Paul knew that was going to happen. Perhaps an angel, maybe even a spirit has spoken to him. Now the Sadducees, Luke said, didn't believe in angels or spirits. The Pharisees did. And so they take the opportunity to goad him a little bit. Well, look what happens. Verse 10, And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, and he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring them into the barracks. There was this great dissension that developed. And Lysias had to have his troops go down into the presence of the courtroom and with force bring the Apostle Paul out of the midst of that. Now you can in your mind envision what might have happened, can't you? In reading through this, understanding what's going on, you can see the Apostle Paul make this statement. And then at least as I imagine it, here's what happened. The Apostle Paul made his statement and there was this pregnant moment of silence when everybody in the courtroom had to decide what side are they on. So there is this pregnant moment of silence and suddenly the Pharisees begin getting up and arguing for the Apostle Paul. We find nothing wrong with him. Perhaps an angel or spirit has spoken to him. And the Sadducees want him dead. They're galled by this. And I think Ananias and the rest of the high priests, they can see what Paul's tactic is and they know what's going on. And this infuriates them. And they want him dead. And so the Sadducees would rush down in the middle there and the Pharisees would rush down in the middle there. And have you ever seen a mob where you've got two sides and two parties? These little skirmishes break out and some are grabbing the Apostle Paul and they want to drag him off to the gallows and kill him and others are grabbing the Apostle Paul and they want to defend him and get him out of the midst of that. And Lysias sees the highest court in the land fighting over the Apostle Paul like a bunch of children in a sandbox fighting over toys. That's what it looks like. And with force, he rushes down in there with all of his troops, grabs the Apostle Paul and says, take him back to the barracks. Now at this juncture, friends, you've got to feel a little sorry for Lysias, don't you? I feel sorry for Lysias, and I'll tell you why I feel sorry for Lysias. He was up minding his own business in the barracks. There was a feast, a festival, the Pentecost going on in the temple, and suddenly word comes to him that there's a riot. And he rushes down in the midst of this with 200 soldiers and the centurions, breaks up the riot, finds the Apostle Paul at the heart of it, grabs him, arrests him, puts him in chains and says, who are you and what are you doing? I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And the minute he asks that question, everybody begins to say one thing and some another. He can't get to the bottom of this. So he takes the Apostle Paul out of there, thinking that he's caught a Jewish terrorist, takes the Apostle Paul out of there, takes him back to the barracks, gets up on the steps of the barracks, and Paul says, can I speak to the crowd? Sure. Lysias stands back thinking, if I let him speak to the crowd, this is going to... Help me discern what is at the bottom of this riot. Let's see the interaction. See what they say. Find out what the accusations are against him. So Paul gives his address to the crowd and the riot breaks out into a frenzy again. The mob breaks out into this frenzied riot again. Now, is Lysias any closer to an answer? No. Man, throws up his hands in exasperation. Take him into the barracks and interrogate him by scourging. And they stretch him out and with the flagellum in their hand, they're getting ready to scourge the apostle Paul to find out what is at the root of this riot. And Paul says, I'm a Roman and I'm uncondemned. Can't do that. I can't scourge a Roman citizen. It would be a violation of the law. So they release him. And Lysias comes up with a wonderful idea. Since this is a theological issue, I'll take him into the heart of the theological council. I'll put him in front of them and see what accusations they raise against him. Then I'll be able to get to the bottom of it. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And pandemonium breaks out and Lysias for the third time in two days has to drag the Apostle Paul out of there and does he yet know what the cause of the whole thing is? If you're Lysias, you've got to just be wanting to claw your eyeballs out. If I could just find out who this guy is and what he has done to infuriate the Jews. And he's no closer to an answer now than he was the day before when he arrested him in the temple. And furthermore, every place he takes this prisoner causes a riot. You notice that? Three times in two days, Lysias has rescued this guy from a mob and from violence. Once in the temple, once on the steps of the barracks, immediately after that, and the third time here in the presence of the Sanhedrin. A mob breaks out. And what I want you to know is this. Notice is this. Three times the Lord has used something to deliver the Apostle Paul. The first time when the Apostle Paul was outside of the temple being beaten back in Acts chapter 21... The Lord used a Roman soldier and a Roman cohort, and the commander of the cohort, to rescue him from the violence of the mob. Because the Lord doesn't want Paul dead. Listen, friends, it doesn't matter how many people in the world want you dead. If the Lord doesn't want you dead, there's nothing they can do about it. So the Lord uses Lysias to rescue the Apostle Paul. When Paul gets inside the barracks and is about to be scourged, what does the Lord do to rescue his servant? What does the Lord use? His citizenship an ordinary thing happened to be born a citizen nothing that paul could do about that nothing that paul not something that paul could have planned just something that he had his citizenship this third time what does the lord use to rescue the apostle paul paul's wit and his wisdom he made a good strategic decision he is on trial for his life and he knows that there is no way he can make a defense that will satisfy this counsel and so he uses his own wit and wisdom his own skill and his own strategy, his own knowledge, the Lord uses that to deliver the Apostle Paul. I think this is exactly what Jesus was speaking of when he said, don't think in that day, don't plan in that day what it is that you're going to say. When they bring you before people for my name's sake to persecute you, I'll give you in that hour what to say. This is a perfect illustration of that. Do you think the Apostle Paul went into the council planning this? He didn't. But when things came apart, what did he do? I know how to... Upset this, I've been here before. I've seen what these discussions can be like in the council. Three times the Lord delivered his servant. Now friends, later on in chapter 23, there's going to be one more time that the Apostle Paul is in danger and one more time that the Lord uses something else to give him deliverance. And what you're going to see next week is how these two things go together. How the sovereign plan of God and his purpose and what he wills to accomplish is carried out and done through our works and our deeds and the things that we do. Because the Apostle Paul is in danger, and the Lord says to him in verse 11, we read this for the Scripture reading, look at it, just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, I'm going to take you to Rome, and you're going to testify for me at Rome. But then his life is in danger. And does Paul sit back and say, well, hey, the Lord's going to take me to Rome? I don't need to do anything. He doesn't do that, does he? What you see is how God's sovereign purpose is worked out through Paul's wisdom and how Paul's wisdom and his actions actually accomplish the sovereign purpose of God. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this morning and for this wonderful illustration of how it is that you deliver your servants from trials and from, from danger. We thank you that you are sovereign and that you are good. We thank you for your watch and care over us and we thank you for this little episode in the life of the Apostle Paul which shows us so much about his character and his wisdom and how you use so many different things to protect us and to guide us and to accomplish your sovereign purpose we thank you for who you are we thank you for your word and we thank you for this time that we have had in it in Jesus name amen thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kooteny Church